Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, I'm catching up with Cub member Nicole Billet, together with her husband, Mark Gardner. They own a company called Teddington Legal, which is a commercial law firm. Nicole shared some great knowledge with me. For example, some of the keys to success with being business partners with your loved one, with your husband or wife, and key insights that would create good business partnerships in general. We discussed how to find your point of difference, not just as a business, but as a person and as a business leader, as well as focused on the topic of having a great amount of empathy towards your clients, putting yourself in your client's shoe and asking the question, what would I want? It was a really incredible conversation and we kind of dove into concepts that are relevant to to any business. It was a great episode, so enjoy the show. Welcome to the show and your wonderful husband, Mark, is not here today, I notice. No, no, he's in Queensland with Lilibet. Um, so, um, well, so we have the smart, uh, the smart <laughs> one in the car here. But um, obviously the, uh, the two of you are the owners of Teddington Legal. Yes, that's correct. And, and uh, tell us, how easy is it to uh, be a married couple in business together? Look, I'm a, a child of a family business, so I saw that growing up and never thought that I would be in that situation and literally ran screaming from that as fast as I could. But when Mark started his practice and then when I got involved, I only got involved after we set some really clear ground rules. So I'd obviously had my own career and my own, you know, um, professional experience independent of him. And so it had to be very clear that I came in with authority. So I wasn't coming in as the wife doing the books on the weekend. It was... I was coming in with authority to be the CEO to drive the business. You, you set the kind of you set the guidelines, it, and I think because I had seen my parents run a business, and my mum was the mum who swanned in and, and did the payroll on Thursday, mm-hmm. and you know had an active role in the business. But that's not me. I've never been her, and I've always had a very independent career. But I also thought that coming together with two very different skill sets with a similar philosophy for client service would only be beneficial if we had a clear mandate on one side of the fence. And, you know, like everybody, they all believe that they are a marketer and, you know, he tiptoes into my side of the patch every now and then and decides that he's going to show me how to do something. And I just casually say, well, I'll just do the next shareholder agreement. (laughs) And, you know, he's like, "Hmm." okay, so he backs off and, and goes back into his zone. But it was, I was very conscious of the optics of a married couple in a professional sense. And I didn't want to be the wife that was coming in to sort of yeah. dilly down. You wanted around. to be a leader. I needed yeah. to be a leader and I needed to have his backing and authority to make decisions because I was leading a, you know, a group of lawyers and I needed to be very clear in my own footing of why I was there and what my mandate was and what I was hoping to achieve. And, you know, he's just backed me 100% in that endeavour. And I think it's worked really well. And I, well, I guess, I guess sorry, maybe perhaps the secret sauce towards, um, uh, you know, it's not even just married couples, it's just kind of like business partners, is setting the foundation at the start. This is why we're partners. Mm. This is what I focus on and what I'm able to do and that's what you do and that's what yeah. you focus on. That 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 you have found has been really important. Really important because you do have boundary issues because you're living and working together. So 
also the opportunity to sort of say, when do we stop talking about business and actually start talking about stuff that's non-business related? And that's hard because anyone who's in their own business knows that it, it is a 24-7, you know, consuming idea or passion that you have. That and, you like to talk about. And you like to talk about and it's but it's, it's not very, you know, sexy when you're sort of having conversation about, oh, yeah, I've got those invoices out today, you know, and I just need to follow up with that client and you kind of need to go, mm, would I be saying that if my partner wasn't involved in the business? And it's an active I suppose, decision about mm. what you do. And do you guys, have you guys discussed that? Okay, we're not speaking about work from 6pm onwards. No, we're not very good with those kind of rules. It, it Because for me as well, because we're so busy, if I don't talk about it now, I forget about it. I don't know whether that's, you know, the Alzheimer's kicking in, but it's a, a case of it's happening now and the business is dynamic and our response time is always dynamic. So I need an answer now. It can't be, well, you know, we're on mute now for the next, you know, 48 hours, so leave it till then and... It'll just go by the by. Yeah, I, I'm a massive fan of the married couple running the business and I just think in all partnerships in general, the most important thing in a partnership, because partnerships go sour. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I've spoken to where um, the worst thing that happened was having the partner, having a business partner. Yep. And and I think having that clear set ground rules from the start is is probably the most important thing. It's like when you're building a house, you need a foundation. You know, that's, it's that's exactly right. And I think it's if you're in a professional sense, you would have clear boundaries, you'd have clear job descriptions, you'd know exactly which department you sat in, you'd know what your expectations who are. Who you're reporting to. Who you report to. And he's very clear that he reports to me. So, you know, there's no issues <laughs> there whatsoever. But I think it's just something that is good business practice. You know, clarity, clear communication, clear setting of expectations minimises everybody's disappointment mm. or... Back of performance. And so Teddington Teddington Legal is the company Mm -hmm. uh, of which yourself and your husband Mark uh, own and operate. Mm -hmm. Um, And and your commercial lawyers or what type of law is it? It's basically commercial law. Mm -hmm. So Mark has an in-house counsel background. So he really developed Teddington to bring that business or commercial sensibility to law. That law can be seen as something that sits almost as an adjunct to a business or Lawyers want to be these sage, lofty advisors sitting, you know, removed from the business where he likes to be quite immersed in it. And, and you can't really give good long-term strategic legal counsel if you're just waiting at the end of the chain to just sign off on something. So the whole idea was to provide a service like if you had your own in-house counsel but for businesses who don't need it full-time. Yeah, might- I've, got, I've got it here written in my notes, which I like. I think it describes it quite well. An outsourced in-house counsel. It is. It is absolutely outsourcing that part of it. So you're not you're outsourcing that headcount. But also, what's interesting, if you do have your own in-house counsel, from a cost point of view, you can only afford a certain amount, which means you get a certain level of experience and you get a certain breadth of experience. So by doing it this way, clients they might only dip in three hours a month, you know, up to forty hours a month, but they get that across all gamut of question or concern within a business which is broad and so one person as an in-house paid employee can't cover that so you're doing a lot more I suppose ex- external seeking of, of advice um, and so with us we've got um, a group of people who have disciplines in commercial in immigration in property in all manner of things that affect a business so if it comes through us in their kind of allotted time and we can get someone to manage it on their behalf it's a much more cost effective way to service those needs and and you also 
like obviously you're doing some of my uh, property um, work that we we're just discussing before this. You also do property? Definitely. And and that comes out of nature as property is a, an integral element of, of business and commercial. So it's, you know, commercial leasing or buying and selling businesses, property, uh, property developments, whatever is required. We've got a couple of, you know, property developers that we work with on both the development side and then the conveyancing of, of those properties down the track. We've also got, you know, large retail clients who have a number of retail stores nationally who need assistance with their leasing and, and it normally comes as a function of the fact that, you know, we've been across all of their commercial work, their employee work. And once again, it's just another element that they need help with within help their with. business. And they already trust you. And so. they trust us. Yeah. I think that's the key thing. And it, it can be a bit, you know, twee people saying, you know, we're all about being a trusted advisor. But I think when you embed yourself in an organisation and you know the vernacular, you know the plans, you know where the bodies are buried, you know, it's – it's much easier to help guide and give advice. Oh, I like the concept of – because really once once you as a business owner find a, a provider or a supplier, a business that you like, a person mm. that you trust and you like working with, if that person could also help you with other or more things, you I mean you'd want them to have it so long as that they could give you an as good service level on those things as they did on the previous. And – Kind of something like, you know, any business could think about it. It's like, okay, what do I currently provide? How can I increase my revenue with my current clients by providing something else that they need mm. because they already trust me and it would be easy for me to do that. Like with Cub currently, it's maybe a little bit different with Cub, but I'll use it anyway. Currently we've got great services that help members grow their personal business network of entrepreneurs. We, allow, we, we help them meet new people consistently. But what we don't actually have a formal service of doing, which we are about to do, is to allow them to uh, – is to provide them a service that allows them to maintain and leverage their existing relationships that they have through the club. Mm-hmm. And while – actually, this is a horrible example because we're not even charging for this as extra. But if we were, it would be a cool example of, you know, hey, here's something else we can provide you. Yep. You already like Cub. You already trust us. Here's another type of service that you need that um, could do. And so like I guess what you're describing, any business could really look at, okay, what else could I provide that my clients yeah. my clients would need and, and I could increase my revenue and, you know, diversify I guess you could call it or. I actually think that it comes down to understanding your client because your client then gives you an indication of their style choice, choices, their life choices, their values, how they go about living their life and running their business. So I've got an example for you. I love Great Dane Furniture, right? Simple Scandinavian mid-modern style design, right? It's not furniture made out of the dog. It's not furniture (laughs) made out of a dog, no. Um, But it's this kind of Danish brand, right? And they have a very simple style aesthetic. And I got a flyer from them in in the mail and they had a picture of a bag. That bag? This bag, right? And, of course, I've gone, oh, that's so beautiful. The styling is the same as the furniture. It's simple. It's classic. It harks back to a period in the 1950s, 60s from a design point of view. And I've gone, that makes complete sense that I would like to buy that bag because I like their lounges. Mm. And so I went in there and I spoke to the guy and had a fantastic experience and he told me that this particular brand was a, um, a, a Swedish brand and they have been negotiating for five years to get this brand that they could distribute out through their, their stores here in Australia and the, the Swedish brand are like, nope, 
I'm not going to, you know, give it to you and, you know, we don't sell online and we don't discount and we don't do any of that rubbish, but they've managed to get it in their stores. And I just thought that's so smart because all they've done is tapped into the needs and wants and style decisions of their existing client base and they've added something completely outside of their wheelhouse. But you go, I now put it on the bench next to the lounge in the lounge room. doesn't go in the cupboard like I usually do with yeah. my handbags. It sits on the yeah. thing and I go, that's so smart. Yeah, I think that's really clever. They, they understand their client. They know what you would like and they, they're it. trying to find you. Well, they're trying to give you more of what you like. Because you stop that fishing out there for more customers mm. and then you say, well, the pond that I already have and nurture and, and love and really understanding why they, they work with you or choose to buy from you and then say, what else do you need? So we tend to try and build a, a network around us of providers that have a similar customer service ethic. So if somebody comes in and we're always asked for accountants, we're asked for there are different sections in law that we don't do. We don't do litigation, we don't do family, we don't do, you know, personal injury, but we have people around us that we say we don't but we're happy to hand you over to our colleague mm -hmm. because we know that they will get the same experience. So it's not about us grabbing for another piece of revenue because I don't think that's in the client's best interest. They need a specialist in that area and if we can support them. Well, yes. So, I, I mean, I agree with that definitely because if you try to provide someone uh, another service they need but do not do it to the highest of standard that you're providing your other service, now you're going to destroy a relationship with a positive relationship with a client and become negative. So the only time that you attempt to do that is when you're confident that you can provide that service the best, better than others. Definitely. Uh, of equal goodness <laughs> as your other as your other services because otherwise you can diminish and it's funny enough it's actually a conversation um that i've been having in my own head uh, and with team cub very much lately because um the clubs are basically going to hit capacity incredibly soon um, and that's why we're launching the cbd and that's why melbourne's moving into a much bigger space so the question is okay well we're not going to be bringing in any new people. We're only going to be replacing anyone that's silly enough to leave. <laughs> but, but, um, um, so the next question is, well, how do you keep growing without actually growing? And any business can do that. It's, you know, mm. you can grow in two ways. You either get more clients or each client is worth a greater amount of revenue to you or to put it in a nice way, you're delivering more value to that client. Absolutely. And therefore generating more revenue. And so it's kind of like an outwards, upwards kind of um and um, th there's two ways to think about growth. Yeah, it's growth yep. revenue per client or growth additional client. Mm. And maybe there should be some times in your business's life where you're going for one of them, you're going for more clients, but then there might be a pause period where it's like, okay, well, let's now focus back on the other style of growing, which could be growing the uh, uh, the value of each client we already have. Mm. And I think that's a really cool um, – I think that's a really cool – Thought. And what about yourself? What, how did you start? What was the start of your career? Were you born in Sydney? Were you born in Sydney, but then dragged to Queensland when I was a youngster with my family who were opening another business in Queensland? What was the family business you mentioned? What's a, what type of business? It's a design and exhibition business. So they build and design show stands for trade fairs and exhibitions. So they've had a pretty rough last 12 months mm. with no exhibition. Um, but my dad started that from nothing. And, you know, my brother runs it now. And um, in 2010, there was a little bit of a challenge in the business and I was, um, I was in my executive career. So I had a sales marketing strategy career, mainly through fast moving consumer goods and then into professional services type firms. And um, 
you know, my family sort of reached out and said they needed a little bit of um, guidance and then I foolishly. You should have said you should have given me the business, not I my brother. I should have just paid them for a year and be done with it. But um, no, there was a, a challenge in the, in the business so I went up to, to help. Um, and it's a really tricky environment, you know, when you're, you kind of overlay family challenges and dramas in with business and I think, you know, as, a, as a, the younger sibling going into an environment where the older sibling really just wants the money to fund his behaviours, not actually change mm-hmm. behaviours and make different decisions, it's a, it's a very interesting environment. The family is one of the most difficult. Pe- people think business is difficult. Family is almost more difficult than business in the sense that in, but, but also, sorry, at the same time, it's also more sim- – it's so simple because the problem with the difficulty comes is that you've got, you know, these kind of family principles that I always have to be there for my family. But then that clashes in situations where like, well, I've got to be there for them but I know they're not going to do the right thing or the, they're doing the wrong thing. I still have mm. to keep helping them. It's like, well, it, it, that's where it becomes difficult. We won't talk about family in this in, in, in this podcast because it's a whole other story. But but – to the but to the start of your career, mm. um, um, uh, actually no. Do you want to finish that story you were just talking about with you? So you went in to help. Yeah, the so went in and sort of um, assisted where I could, and then needed a little bit of distance and a bit of a break. And um, Mark had already started Teddington Legal at that stage. He was on his own, and I went into the office one day, and he was doing the trust account in a word document, and I'm just like, "Oh please, will you just let me put it in a spreadsheet?" You know, and then started to work on just some systemizing and organizing and taking some rubbish away from him I'm like why are you a qualified lawyer sitting there on a Sunday doing the trust account one and then two there's probably about 30 or 40 percent of your day that's non-client focused or non-billable valuable time um that's, I shouldn't that, have said billable hours. Well, no, we do a fixed fee <laughs> yeah. we're not into the billable oh, hours you do. Yep. okay I was going to ask you that now we charge on an outcome so we don't think that – it shouldn't matter whether it takes you five minutes or two uh, hundred hours. It should be about have you satisfied the client's needs. So if yeah. you and agree a rate yeah. for X job, then get it done. Yeah, it's kind of like if I want a Big Mac, I don't care how long it takes you to make that Big Mac. I'm not paying more because it took you longer. Exactly. I'm paying for the Big Mac. I think you should be given to me – Whenever I want it, but if you work on the Big Mac longer, it takes you longer to fix the meat. You've got to fix your oven before you cook. You don't use ovens for hamburgers, but you know what I'm saying. I want the Big Mac. I should be, you know who you have to meet. Um, we've got two members in Melbourne. They are two of the most incredible women. Uh, I had such a f- f- good time with them laughing. They, they're on the, on, on the podcast. Their names were Karen and Bianca, and they own a company called uh, Legally Yours. Mm-hmm. And what is, have you heard of it? No. Okay, because you smiled like you did. <laughs> but, but, um, what it is is an online platform that connects uh, consumers with uh, firms and lawyers uh, who of whom are willing to work at a fixed rate per mm-hmm. like a fixed rate per so per Big Mac, um, and uh, like the thinking behind it is that seventy percent. Well, it, it, this is what Karen told me that seventy percent of the market. Uh, 70% of people are too afraid to call their lawyer of fear of being charged. Yep. And so they wanted to capture that market by, by creating a community of lawyers who, um, who don't, uh, I guess, ha- who don't create that fear for, yep. uh, for, for that market of the, that segment of the market. 
And you should definitely check it out. You should definitely, definitely. I'll introduce you yeah. right after this to, to them. They're, they're so I think good. That principle for, for consumers or, you know, one off jobs is is absolutely right. And then we've taken that to the next level where it's a consistent, you know, ongoing business relationship so that, you know, it is they know that it's going to be a fixed fee or we'll quote it up front and and they can make a phone call or, or sort of ask us something that they might not necessarily do or they might sign something going, mm, do I really want to run it through a lawyer? And it was really just to take away that fear of am I going to get stitched up for this and yeah. taking the position that, you know, we're just there to help and how does that help manifest? It could be answering a question on the phone, it could be, you know, sort of answering an email, it could be doing a significant piece of documentation or helping them through a sale process. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't – we're not prepared to go – you know, we're going to limit it. It's like, what do you need? Yeah. I think I, I would say that's a very, like, that's the modern legal firm approach. And also, I don't know if this is true or not, but after speaking to, to Karen, it was also what she was saying is it's also a bit of a feminine touch to the legal. Like, law has always been a very masculine, still is, is a masculine, male dominated kind of profession. Whereas what Karen was saying, which I'd love your opinion on too, is that um, sh- she believes that there's uh, that women have also had a great impact now on law and a lot of these new modern firms that, that are being led by um, uh, women who, who who could potentially be more empathetic to the client are bringing empathy to law. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting kind of a, a thought because it kind of it's kind of the example of diversity having a positive impact on uh, on an industry, mm. you know, creating more competition and therefore more reason for the consumer to have a better product. Well, it gives you a competitive advantage and I think that you go right back to the education system and, you know, lawyers come out of university with a law degree and they're basically unskilled labour. Like they can do nothing. They've got an enormous kind of attitude that, you know, they're, they're ready to go um, but they're taught and in there they're taught to look for the problem they're taught to look for things are not what they seem they're, they're taught to look for the potholes that you might fall into so they're they're almost taught to be you know a little negative um, a little skeptical um, almost intolerant you know this is these are the rules you know it's pretty black and white and we all know great you know life's a little grayer than that especially in business especially in business um, and so I think there's something that can be done almost at the university level in terms of education because also what they're not taught, they're not taught that being a lawyer just means that you're selling a legal service, whether you're selling Pepsi can or you're selling a paint tin, you're selling legal services, you're going into, you know, a profession to sell stuff and that connection is never made. They it almost like this noble cause, you know, to take on that kind of profession Um which I think then removes you from the client. And the moment you remove from the client, you can't empathise because they're taught to stay remote, um, objective, all of these kind of Okay, so that's interesting. So adjectives. you're saying, yeah, that it's, it's empathy has left law because they're supposed to look at things more subjectively, like more uh, outside of the – I'm not in the situation, I'm, I'm out of the and situation. And it doesn't touch me. You yeah. know, you talk to anyone in family that's law. That's interesting. That's a cool new thought. And they have to actively manage um, a moat or a mask because if they didn't, their their world is so full of angst and pain and devastation that if they allowed that door to open, it'd be and interesting to talk to Monica about it. But yeah. you know, it's 
there is a, a process where they have to say, um, this is not my fight, this is not my issue. And I know because Mark started his career as a, a police prosecutor and he stopped doing that because he there was one too many cases that he just went, I, I cannot watch this play out in front of me again. It's just too it's and, it's just too And hard. to the listeners uh, and members, Monica, the aforementioned Monica, uh, his name is Monica Lama and is a, a member who owns a family law business at Cub. And I think the lesson that kind of like a, an interesting lesson that's uh, um, that we're discussing that is relevant to all businesses is the concept of the business owner having uh, empathy towards uh, or being empathetic towards the clients. And, and what that actually means is understanding the situation of your client, why they need your product, what emotions they're feeling mm. when they need you or are using you, what are the uh, emotions or things you should be providing them, what are the, you know, um, the world has two kind of sides. It's like in sales, you get taught there's the logical brain and the emotional brain and you have to stimulate both sides of the brain to make a sale. It's also kind of like well, that. that's that's how you should serve your clients too. They, they, you can't just provide the actual result. I'm sure there's some people that may be like that, but it's also nice to give the results, but also to provide the the understanding of their, their the empathetic understanding and provide them the emotions that they that you know fulfill the emotional need of them mm-hmm. while they're in transaction with you. So for a cub, for example, belonging and a feeling of being special would be that need. You know, they walk in, everyone gets up, hugs them, and it's so exciting. It's like you walked into your family's house, they haven't seen you in a while, and 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 that could be the need. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be the emotional trigger. That does not help them grow their network whatsoever, but it's fulfilling a sense of of belonging, which is probably a is probably the the deep. Uh, you know, kind of the inner emotion of the club or, or, or whatnot, you know. And any business could think of, okay, what's that hole we're filling? What's that emotional hole that we're filling? And you need empathy to do that. You can't just look at the product. And it's it's being able to manage that empathy to a point where, you know, you're not kind of giving, you know, your soul to every single circumstance because, you know, you would you'd just be bereft by the end of the year. But it is just about putting yourself in their shoes. I think it's as simple as that. And I think that's a skill that we're losing today. I think it's a skill that we're losing in that we're not allowed to be open to an alternate view or, you know, if you share a different experience which has led you to a different set of values, if they contradict with someone else's, you know, it's 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 an instant name calling exercise rather than saying, look, I hear what you're saying, you know, I don't agree with you but I hear what you're saying and you're entitled to that opinion. And I think we're losing that ability. We're losing the ability to debate vigorously different points of view. And But you know what's so sad about that? It's literally the opposite to diversity. I know. Do you know, like that's, that's the whole – It's <laughs> making everyone homogenous. Yeah, we need more people thinking more different things because if everyone thinks the same thing, we're, it, there's no diversity. In so thought. how can you be empathetic to somebody? It's like, oh, I'm only going to be empathetic to those people who have the same experiences exactly as, as me. Exactly yeah. And you think, well, that's – not, you know, I suppose the point of it either. No. But I, th- I think and if you take the word empathy out because lots of people will, will deem that as, you know, a, a word they're probably not comfortable with, simply putting yourself in your client's shoes mm. and it will be different for them each time. Even if they're doing a similar transaction, it might be different for them this time because their personal circum- circumstances are different or their business circumstances are different. So, you know, it, it's kind of working with them to understand what does that mean. Yeah, 100%. It's just kind of like if I was my client, would I like this? That's how I always say to the team, like, well, if I don't want to go, then I don't expect members want to go. You know, it should be something that I think's great because 
you know, if I, I'm the I'm a potential member, I'm 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 a, a mm. target demographic as a business owner. You know, it, it kind of be like look at yourself as your client. If I was my client, what would be the experience that I would want? It's using the my cheapest product? market research out there. Literally, yeah, yeah. It's really, and you know, I don't think it's done enough. Like, I, I think that's a that's a great way, especially at the start before you have big budgets and marketing and and a lot of clients, for mm. example, before you have a lot of clients to ask. Um, um, asking yourself what you would want is probably a great way exactly. to do it. Exactly. And asking, you know, the group around you. You've, everyone's got a personal group, a professional group around you that you can sanity check some ideas with, you know, simply without going to a lot of expense. And tell me, you're also a bit of a – you're a very multifaceted woman, aren't you? You're also a bit of a property investor. Mm-hmm. And you uh, recently told me last time we caught up that you're actually back at university studying architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what were your – have you always been into property or was that something that came once you got into business? No, I think it's always been with me and came from, you know, a family where, you know, you don't pay rent, you you put your money into something tangible. I've worked since I was 13. I've saved from every paycheck since I was 13. I've been planning my retirement since I was 15. <laughs> Sad but true. Um, and I think it was just something that, you know, I, I could do and gave me a reason to keep working and striving. I'm a bit of a goal-orientated person so it kind of fit neatly, I think, into my personality type. Um but I can almost mark my career by, you know, the property I purchased because it might have been in the city that I was moved to to work for or <laughs> needed it for some particular and, reason. And are there any types of properties that you prefer to purchase or what are the things you look for when when, um, when buying property? I normally buy unique. So if the property has something that is different to the mainstream, it almost – it always has a value slightly higher than, than its competitor set – so it's kind of like having your uh, um, as a business having your what's that called your a unique, USB yeah, yeah what's that stand for again unique selling proposition yeah it's like yeah. A, it's like a, your property you can tra- look at the property like it's a business what's unique you know why is this the best one and and as strange as it sounds um, being inside a, a building and having a feeling for it so every single property I've ever purchased the moment I've walked into it I've just known in my gut that it was the right one like I'd done all the, the analysis and then I would go back and sanity check my my instinct on it with with analysis and a kind of financial review of it but you have to kind of get a sense because I believe buildings have you know they have a soul they have personality they have um, a reason for being and they have a history so you can leverage off that for you know potential selling it down the track or for renting it out or for understanding who the who the tenant you might want in there is. And I just think that, you know, if you feel it. But see, you're even being empathetic towards buildings now. That <laughs> I need to lie down <laughs> you now. You have a very high <laughs> empathy level. I look at building like, well, what was that? <laughs> and, and so, uh, I mean, I, I know you've grown a bit of a property portfolio now. Um, is is that something you would continue or do you feel like eventually you get to a point where, okay, no, that I have enough property, I'd look at something else? Yeah, no, we had a, a plan, pretty clear plan of what we needed in order to manage the rest of, of our kind of existence um, and we've got a mix of commercial and, and residential in both the Superfund and, and in our personal names um, and we've got enough now. So now we've got enough um, 
the commercials are really the revenue generating engine for when we stop working so that we know that that's there and the residential really for um, for growth and capital. capital. And so we can then sell those off in order to sort of have a little bit more cash but the and pay off the commercials which will then be the revenue generating engine. Yeah. But so you've got a plan. I've got a plan, it, it's yeah. It's essentially like a business plan, you know, this is our business plan for our property investment. Definitely. And so now it's um it, it's all about paying them off. So the ex- excess funds um you know is kind of looking to sort of pay off the most relevant asset. Mm-hmm. Um and the things we're now looking at to pay off the commercial assets. Yeah. So that once it's all paid off, you're earning an even higher return. Yep. So and by then the time they, you finish retiring, it's fully paid off and you're getting a full return from it. And then it. they pay off the resis if there's any shortfall, not that mm-hmm. there is. In, but in I, I like the idea of that the, it's like a business plan for your property investment. Anything in life, I could pretty much relate to business somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Bus- business is the greatest metaphor there is of life ever. It is. For, for those that are strong. It's, it, but it's for, the, it's for the toughest humans. It's for the the um, the extraordinary because it's not for ordinary. First of all, there's so few people um, that – a few percentage of people that own a business. I should know the percentage but it jumped out of my head. But there's the, – the number of people that own a business with a revenue of uh, greater than $2 million is even few. It's like 1% of businesses, mm. you know. And, and so it's – and I think it's just because it's hard. It, it's, a, it's a difficult journey. It, journey. it takes a very tough, uh, resilient um, person to – to almost sustain the the it's kind of what am I trying to say? Life is hard in the first place. Just living a normal life is hard. Bad things are going to happen. But when you when your life is running a business, really bad things are going to happen really often. Mm. It's life intensified. I think that the idea of resilience is really key in that. That you know, basically anyone can run a business, open a business. You know, will they be successful? And it is is the question. But that ability to just keep picking yourself up, you know, no matter what comes your way and no matter how, you know, life changes and sometimes your business takes a turn with, without you having any control in that whatsoever, global pandemic, you know, markets. The global pandemic suck. Yeah, m- markets crashing, all those things that you think I've, I've banked on, you know, this being my future and then all of a sudden you look around and you go, well, that, that's no longer a plan because – it doesn't exist anymore or those kids that are going into university now for jobs that are no longer going to exist and it's like okay well that no point being in university to be you know in the exhibition industry or you might want to rethink your event career because it you know yes it may come back but it'll look very different yeah so yeah, I, I think agree. it's a real challenge that you know you have to have this ability to be resilient and not say well it's always been my dream to be you know this person it's like well you need to adapt there's a lot of members um like I, uh, I won't say her name because um, I don't know. I, I haven't got permission to talk about what she told me. But um, she's mm-hmm. a member that I respect very highly. In fact, I just asked her to join Cubs' new advisory board uh, for myself. Um, and so I was catching up with her last week. And she owns a very huge uh, events company. Like uh, she's brought out like uh, presidents and like huge, huge, huge names. Um, stadiums with 12,000 people sometimes for these events. And so obviously when COVID happened, um, uh, she couldn't run her business anymore. She had this huge – she was actually two weeks out from a, hu- a like 12,000-person event before – two weeks out until when the lockdown happened. And um, so yeah, I'm catching up with them like, 
I was actually asking him to be on my advisory board, like I said. And I said, by the way, tell me, how the hell did you get through last year? Like, what the fuck happened? And she was like, did we just have to stop? I was like, she was like, I was stuck. I didn't know what to do. Um, I, you know, I had to process refunds and, and, you know, she actually said she had full-time staff just doing refunds all year for people that had bought tickets to things and she had to pay those staff, you know, to be there. So she's burning money. But she said, look, I eventually I just picked myself up. I started uh, doing the same thing, so delivering the same value in, in terms of um, keynote events and things like that, but digitally. And I created a digital membership. I, re- I got, still got the, the same amazing people from overseas to do it. And now I've got, a dig- now I've got recurring revenue coming through these digital memberships. And she said, look, it's not as, I guess, profitable as the previous business, but she goes, the previous business is coming back eventually. And when it does, I have two businesses now Ready. and I'm earning double. And and so, you know, that's the just prime example of someone who took a shitty situation and turned it into a positive. And it may not be the full positive just yet, but in two years time, she may be doubling down in profits, doubling down in value she's delivering to the public and 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 she'll achieve that she's just she's a superhero as far as i'm concerned because because that is resilience and it's also the right perception on the world on life you know mm-hmm. it's not oh this happened to me now i'm going to quit it's oh this happened to me okay what am i going to do what 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 can i make positive out of this situation you know the things happen for a reason for every down there's an up where's the up where to find it it's a it's a conscious decision to find and i i i i believe that like speaking to people like you and all the members that I get to speak to daily, that's the common thread. That people aren't just just naturally smarter than others and that's why they're able to run businesses. That's that's not the, the situation. Often they're very smart, but that's not that's not the entire situation. I, I would I would believe the absolute key is the ability to look for the positives. That's that's Definitely. the most important thing. And and do you think that coming from a family of business, uh, do you think that that played a big impact on your uh, on your career in terms of getting into business or do you think it was a positive or a negative for you? In terms of coming from family business? Yeah, like how do you think that impacted you and the way you look at the world and the way you uh, run or start your business? Look, I think undoubtedly it gave me my sense of work ethic. I Just seeing, you know, the way my father worked and what he needed to do to keep, you know, the family going. None, no one in my family was university educated so, you know, they just got in, had a red hot go and and sort of put food on the table which is inspiring. Um, also sort of growing up, you know, being told that, you know, no man was ever going to take care of me and I had to take care of myself, which meant I had to educate myself. I had to make sure I made good. Is that what your family told yeah, you? Yeah. That's de- super cool. Work decisions. And so I prioritised, um, you know, kind of being driven and getting involved in things. And I was, you know, I was really ambitious. And so I took on jobs um, that no one else really wanted, so the, the roles that weren't clearly defined, that they really didn't know what happened but they needed something fixed, so I got thrown into lots of those kind of roles. You know, I took jobs in places that no one else wanted to go to to take the opportunity and move myself forward. So I was really driven to do that and then always thought that I liked the idea of being king, you know, in my own environment um, you could have said queen, but whatever. I could have said queen. I probably should have said queen. Um, <laughs> and then when Mark kind of, you know, went out into his own thing and I thought, well, that's great. He that wanted to be queen, so it worked he out. He wanted to be the queen. Um, and then when, you know, and I really didn't want to be in my own family business, but then when the call came and I thought, well, I can dip in sort of 
get involved in that. But it wasn't really until I came back and we agreed that, you know, we would run and build a business together and we had a plan to sort of build and, and drive a different style of law firm that I really started to go, well, yeah, I can do this. You know, I, th- I can kind of apply all of those learnings that I've had through corporate Australia and I'm so grateful that I had all of that learning experience, education, um, you know, and sort of opportunities that were presented to me. And then to sort of have the experience of going into a family business or a small business, which is like the sublime to the ridiculous in terms of resource availability, you know, structure, infrastructure, you just don't have it. So to have seen both sides of the coin and go, I can draw from both of those experiences and create an environment for both, you know, team and client that's different than what else is out there, that once again, it's it's an interesting opportunity to explore. Mm. You said a lot of things actually that. I would like to dive more into. One of them was the the, the beauty of small business. Like when, when you're a small business, you don't have the resource and the infrastructure to to do everything. And, and I think a, a cool topic to talk about there is the fact that small business has the advantage of being able to focus and, and do the essentials. And you know, pivot. And, and, and of course pivot. Yeah. But, but you, you, you know, while you're small, focus on doing what you do the best, you know, put all your resource into the most important thing. Don't worry about the fluff and the this and that. Focus on the most important as a small business. Um, the other one was that you said you you um, you were willing to go places people didn't want to do or take jobs people didn't want, and that's a really interesting topic because I've read a lot of books about um, um, like there's a lot of evidence or there's a lot of uh, books that talk about why migrants um, and countries with the most uh, with lots of migration are the most entrepreneurial countries. And often what happens, and there's a lot, there's a lot of examples um, 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 uh, like uh, with uh, all the Jews in New York, in law, and, and you can even look at a lot of the, like in Australia, a lot of uh, Lebanese doing um, um, uh, building and construction. Um, I haven't communicated this correctly, but, Often migrants take jobs that others don't want to take. For example, in New York, um, a lot of the Jewish migrants that came from Europe knew how to do the rag trade and the sewing and all that type of things. And these weren't things Americans would like to do. And they did that and they created incredible businesses out of it. And and I can't remember what book that was, that, that was, but it's quite a commonly known book. And then they became lawyers and law firms didn't want to hire them. Uh, so they created their own law firms. And then um, they focused on the type of law that – you know, the Americans didn't want to do, which was at that time m that was considered bad law, ugly. And then they did that and then m suddenly became the, the law of choice and now suddenly they all control because – and it all stemmed from they had to do what others didn't want to do. And you can look in Australia, you know, no, the Australians didn't want to be concreters and bricklayers and, and, um, uh, and all these trades. And so migrants come mm-hmm. – I use Lebanese as an example because I am, but, but – not that I'm very good tradie, but 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 they, I know how. What do you know how to do? I know how to build. I can I can do concrete. I can do gyprock. I can I can uh, do. I'm a carpenter. I can do all these things. And then all of a sudden, what what does the country need? It needs more housing because the country's empty and there's all these migrations. So what happens? All these migrants become super rich because suddenly they're building all these towers and they're building huge amounts of housing and and it all stems from doing something that other people just mm. just didn't want to do. 
you know, and and uh, that's why I'm very pro-migration because migration, it just fuels entrepreneurship. You know, if someone's not going to get a job at a big corporate, well, they are forced to go start a business and all of a sudden yeah. they put in a, re- you know, they, potentially they may not have started their business if that didn't happen. Mm. And, and now they've got all this, they can provide their family more and their family can get stronger and they can get more educated and they can assimilate better or grow more business and, and have more opportunity. So, again, it's just kind of like there's a negative and then there's a positive. I think so and in, in it's I think it's often easier to, to just go along with the flow and, and do what everyone else is doing but, you know, I found the more, more interesting work in the areas where it was a conundrum or people didn't want to do it because, you know, I was never good in a job where they said, here are your parameters, this is what you can do and you can kind of move the needle 1%. Or can I go in somewhere where I have a monumental change and, and make a difference? I think that from a personal point of view gave me more satisfaction to think that I had actually moved it fundamentally, either the people or the process yeah. or whatever, than just being in a job that you're kind of in maintenance mode and you could do it, Red Ass Baboon could do it, you know, like it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But also just to relate, just more proof that everything relates back to a business. It'd be like choosing the business that is in that has heaps of competition or choosing a business that has very little competition. Exactly. You'd go the one with very little because yeah. your value goes up. So it's a really cool lesson and it's actually someone not, no, no one's ever brought that up on the podcast before, so thank you. Um, another question I had for you is um, as, a, as a woman in business and a successful woman in business, have you ever felt, I mean, what has that experience been for you? Have you felt that's been a disadvantage in some ways, an advantage in some ways? Um, uh, have you had any lessons that you'd, you, that you'd want to share with, with other business women to, you know, um, to kind of further motivate or whatever it may be? Look, I think there could probably be another hour worth of podcast on that topic there. <laughs> Should have asked them uh, to start. <laughs> but um, look, I think I tended to, once again, go into environments where I was the first woman to do things, um, not out of any desire to be the first woman. I just seemed to find myself in these circumstances. Um, and I didn't really think, and I think it came back to my my first uh, corporate job with um, Mars Confectionery and they were an American company, very egalitarian and it was all about merit. And that really set the foundation for me about success. And I didn't see it as a gender issue until I, then I went to Uncle Toby's that was like being back in the 1950s and I was the first woman in an executive team and you know, they didn't quite know what to do with me. But I didn't know there was anything wrong with the way I was approaching things. Um, but And I was lucky enough to have a, a line manager who saw me for my abilities, saw what he wanted to create, thought I was the right match and was prepared to, A, let me go as long as I needed to go, was happy to go on my own, but then was prepared to step in if he needed to box some ears, if, if I wanted some ear boxing done. Um and I'm grateful for those opportunities, but it's it's tough, you know. Like, I there's not one woman I I know that hasn't had you know a, a negative, poor experience with someone treating them badly in the workplace. Um, and we all just brush it aside and go, oh, you know, I just have to suck it up. Um, I don't want to make a fuss. All those kind of you know challenges. But I just tried to sort of move out of that dialogue and out of that experience and think well I can only can control myself and I can only control the environment you know that I'm in Um, I can't fight the big massive fight Um, so I can try and make changes with the people around me the way I run businesses the way I manage people 
the way, the environment that I wanted people to come into, so our workplace. Um, and I think that whether it's a gender issue, whether it's an age issue or a race issue, difference helps you be better and having a mirror, you know, shown up to you or a different opinion. And this is why, going back to my earlier comment, that I think it's such a tragedy that we're not allowed to debate, we're not allowed to point out, you know, that you're different or explore the ideas that you think differently, feel differently, walk differently. Try to understand each other. Try to understand, you know, like I think that we would be better off if we're all just a little less precious and a little more focused on, you know, the, the similarities rather than the differences and then knowing that we're all... You know, on the you know, I'm not going to say the journey. I mean, when we're all in, you know, on the bus together to sort of, um, we just bring different things. And and I see this very much in our organisation because we're you know small, but you know, I, I refuse to have this fee earner non fee earner culture in our company, which is rife in law firms. That if you're a non fee earner, you're a non legal person, you don't exist. You're you know just a cost. Where the way I see it is that our customers benefit from everybody's involvement. And that can be, you know, our outsourced kind of admin person in the Philippines who's getting all the back of house done. It could be the, you know, Sydney-based private school educated lawyer. It could be, you know, the sales person that doesn't have anything to do with law. All of those contributions means the output for that client is better, richer, fuller. Um, and so they're the only things I can do in my capacity as a, as a female business owner. And what would you say is a positive thing that has come – as a female business owner, what's something positive that has perhaps come from some of the negative experiences that you may have experienced? Made me really strong. Mm. Made me really tough. Made you tough. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the most important thing you need. Like we said, resilience is the most important thing you need in business. It is. And I think it's really interesting. One of some feedback I got as a young executive was that my compassion and my empathy and my womanly ways was going to be like the, the death of my career. <laughs> um, and I've just gone, oh, we'll just see about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, if that still makes me different but I can manage both things but then more of those circumstances arose and it just just sharpens your, your – I suppose your resolve to do things differently or – but yeah. I guess it highlights what makes you also special. What makes your, you know, your style uh, different and more appealing to 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 other people. You know, like it's kind of highlighted what ma- your point of difference and your value. You know, exactly. And you're able then to be aware of it. And when you like now have a very successful business of your own, you make sure that that is the card you kind of that's the foot you put forward. Yeah. That's, that's the that's the card you play. But it has to be consistent. So. It has to be consistent in the way that you – in the way you go about things that, you know, you can't kind of pick and choose what that looks like. And I think this whole idea of, of authenticity and making sure that, you know, if you are going to be different and you're going to take all of your experiences to create a brand or a business or an experience, then you have to stay true to that. And that has to be in all things, your written communication, you know, your verbal communication, how you dress. You know, Mark's been wearing jeans and a T-shirt, you know, for the last 10 years we work with lots of tech companies. So that's who he is. He's not a buttoned-up suit-wearing lawyer. So all of your touch points with clients and how you present yourself to the world has to sort of then fall into line with, well, that's who we are and that's what our difference is. It's incredible. And um, we normally finish the podcast asking um, 
maybe a favourite book recommendation you might have. Uh, is there a book that uh, I guess has been tremendously valuable for you that you think others should should be aware of? Look, I've um, uh, yeah, a book um, called Thinking Fast and Slow by. Daniel. I know the book. You know it. I have it in my in my um, in my library. And and so, what about Thinking Fast and Slow? Did yeah, what did you take from it? It was more because I've I've always been a really considered decision maker, right? So I marinate in things. I you know I think about it, I understand it, but I might come back to it and reflect on it. Where I often was envious of those people in the room who would just make a, a decision off the cuff or from me. That's me. From their but that hip. also shoots you in the face. Exactly. Sometimes. And I cough often you know will circle back and come back to something and go. I haven't. I've thought it all the way through now, and I wanted to understand, you know, how I could leverage off that faster emotional side of the brain and and pair it with my more logical kind of process driven analytical brain, side, yeah. analytical side of the brain. And and I just I just found it fascinating this whole idea of duality and kind of bringing the two things together. And, and interesting enough, Mark's much more of a, an emotional, faster thinker. He makes amazing decisions quickly. Um, and I drive him a bit crazy because I'll come back about 10 minutes later and go, can I just take you back to that one we talked about down here? Because I'd thought about it, I'd processed it, I'd run some scenarios in my head. Um, and I know that when I – but when I make emotional fast decisions, they're just a catastrophic failure. Yeah, but see, I that that's so true because um, – and that's also such a positive from having – like. I mean, a married couple owning the business works perfectly because you may have a – um, the husband who may be the really quick decision maker and, and that type of thing and doesn't think too much, you know, and, and you might have the wife who is, who actually is checking, say, wait a second, are you sure? Like that, that this could take us off the cliff. And, and that, again, that diversity in, in um, thinking types, I guess, it makes your business stronger. Like uh, we did personality tests at work once. It's called the D-I-S-N-C, DIS test. <laughs> yes, got there. Um, and uh, I, I did it with some of the team um, and we're using it for our hiring process. And um, because all the uh, membership people had extremely similar um, personality types, all the engagement people literally had all the same personality type. They, they were getting the same results. We're like, okay, well, clearly we've got to hire people in these type of things and the different roles required different styles of thinking and different skill sets. And so you could see that common people are, are having success in those roles and they did mine. And the guy looks at me, he goes, I've never seen anyone that ha- that's so one-sided as you, apparently. He's like, you have 100% D and 90-something percent I and then you've almost got no, no S and C. <laughs> and he goes, you've got – a big problem. And I was like, why? He's like, the D is going to make you charge forwards. And he goes, you'd actually be great in a war. <laughs> if you're at war, he goes, you'd be good. But, but he goes, your D is, um, is, is, is super high and your I is super high. And D is like, I think it's D, is that what it's called? Yeah. But D is like dominance, which is like, you know, you, you're going to lead into something. You make a decision and you do it quickly and you move forwards. And he goes, the problem is, you have really high eye and apparently with high eye, it's like emotional intelligence. It's like you could get everyone to believe that potentially a very dumb decision that made by your D is a good one. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, that is a very bad thing because if you don't have anyone to check you, you could lead your whole team off a cliff. I was like, oh no. <laughs> I was like, so now every time I make a decision, I'm like, ask Laura, ask Alice, ask Holly, ask Calvin. I'm like, guys, you know, you know, should, should we do this? And, and so being aware of that is kind of, 
Mm. I guess, uh, you know, if you're aware of that type of thing, it's really good because then you can ask people that you, you know, perhaps are more logical and analytical and may think uh, that's the slower thought, uh, the slower decision-making process. You can actually then ask them and be mm. like, hey, what do you guys think? Yeah. And potentially save yourself from running off a cliff. Let's leave it there. Um, Nicole, thank you so much. That was absolutely incredible conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for the um, opportunity. And thank you for uh, being a member of our lovely community. It is a stronger community because you're in it. And if any of the members and listeners want to reach out to Nicole um, or pot- potentially get in contact with Teddington Legal, um, you can go to our website, which is cub.club forward slash podcast. You'll find Nicole's uh, LinkedIn um, uh, URL, website, favorite quotes, books. Uh, so please go to cup.club forward slash podcast and you'll find everything you need as well as all the other great podcasts we have. Thank you, Nicole, for coming on the show. You're welcome. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show.